Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught David Granger. David got his wings managing the international digital and social strategy for Red Bull, its Formula One teams, and for companies in aviation, fashion, and music, including the Wu-Tang Clan. Now based near Lake Geneva, he's currently testing his client-side chops as head of content at Philip Morris International. He is a columnist for iSport Connect, fan of Leicester City and keen guitarist who likes nothing more than to talk about 80s Manchester bands. David says, even now, interns and work experience students are manning the community management and posting for organisations. The one place where you have direct contact with your audience and it's not someone senior answering these complaints, reactions and potential leads. You need to have a word. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much, Giles. Thank you for having me. Seven quickfire questions then, David. Beer or wine? Uh, wine. Just. Glastonbury or park life? Uh, oh, my God. Uh, if you'd asked me that in the 80s, I'd have probably said Glastonbury. I'd probably say park life now. Cool. Uh, Joy Division or Manic Street Preachers? Oh, my God, that's tough. Uh, I would say... Um, uh, I'd say I'd say Manic Street Preachers every time they have been they've been instrumental and uh, part of my life in so many ways. So yeah, the Manics, uh, Vettel or Vardy? Uh, oh God, these are tough, man. Uh, Jamie Vardy, he's having a party. <laughs> uh, right, Red Bull one now. Soapbox racing or cliff diving? For spectacle, cliff diving. Um, for participation, uh, soapbox is just genius, but um, just to watch cliff diving is, is just insane. Yeah. Right, two more. Uh, Method Man or Ray Corn? Uh, Method Man. <laughs> and uh, I said I would. Colin Lewis or Colin Farrell? Um, Colin Farrell. I'm joking, Colin. No, Colin <laughs> Lewis. Colin Lewis. Every time. Bless him. Ah, damn it. Thanks for, um, thanks for joining us, David. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Giles, for inviting me. I'm uh, uh, flattered to be, uh, to be asked. So we like to celebrate the, the roundabout and often remarkable route that guests take in their career. So your bio includes an impressive stint at Red Bull Racing and Red Bull Media House. So how did that all begin for you? And what was your first ever job? My first ever job was I was the junior trainee reporter at the Harbour Mail in Leicestershire. So I started out as a, as a print journalist and I absolutely loved it. It was, you know, going from, uh, you know, my, my first week as on work experience, we didn't have interns in those days. My first week in, in, as working experience, we went to court and there was uh, just some quite horrific stuff that was going on. Um, but I was just enthralled by the idea that you, you had access to these stories, you could write them, you could print them. And then every Thursday morning, people pick them up and that's where they got their, every, all their information. So I started off as a journalist. I did a, a stint at PlayStation Plus in, um, in London and then came back to local papers and kind of worked my way to be editor of the Daventry Express, which was uh, Daventry's leading weekly paid for newspaper. And just loved it you know the idea that you could kind of you could help and support these communities with their news but also give them kind of a reflection of of, of the uh, the downside and the poor side but also champion them as well uh, i absolutely loved and then in 2002 i looked around and i thought i could be doing this for the rest of my life little did i know that newspapers would take a kind of a downturn uh, a couple of years later but then so in I then went and worked, I worked for three weeks at a PR agency and didn't enjoy that very much. So then went and worked for Motorcycle News, 
where I was their production editor. And then I saw an advert in The Guardian for the, the Red Bulletin magazine was looking for a, a sub-editor uh, to work in Formula One. And I had absolutely no idea what the Red Bulletin was. I had absolutely no idea what Formula One really was about. So I bought myself uh, F1 for Dummies. I read it twice uh, and then went for an interview. And it turned out to be a very early, it was kind of one of the very early content marketing uh, campaigns and exercises that Red Bull did. And they just started a Formula One team in 2005. And they knew they probably weren't going to win world championships. So they did lots of stuff to promote the team, which had nothing to do with racing. So we had, um, we had great parties. We had uh, the magazine. And the magazine was, we had a, a Heidelberg printing press, which was taken from race to race. So they, they transported this uh, printing press on the back of, the tr- of a truck. And the side of this truck would, would open out and that would be our office. And then four times every race, uh, so Friday morning, Saturday morning, Sunday morning, and Sunday after the race, we would produce a magazine. And it was just, it was brilliant because it was so immediate. Um, it was it was printing where when everyone was kind of just looking at print, uh, printed products and saying, this might not be the future. But we were doing it and people loved it. But the weird thing was, it was only for the paddock so it was only for the people that worked in Formula One. It wasn't for the fans, which seemed kind of a little bit incestuous and a little bit uh, as if it, it had no kind of marketing uh, value to it. But what it did was it made these magazines gold dust for Formula One fans. If they could get hold of one of these magazines, it meant they knew someone who worked in Formula One. Um, so I did that, uh, and then I set up their website. So redbulletin.com was the first Red Bull website I set up. Uh, and then I did that for about six months. And then Red Bull Racing uh, asked me to, to join them and to run the websites for Red Bull Racing and Scuderia Toro Rosso, which was their uh, Italian sister team. And so I was, I was website manager and I joined them in 2007 and worked till 2012 uh, managing their websites. I then took a bit of a break. Uh, my my son, I realised that I hadn't seen him. I worked out, I, I added up all the weekends that I'd been away and I worked out that he was four and I'd been away for a year of his life. And I thought, this this has to change a bit. So I went I went freelance, but most of my freelance work was with Red Bull. So I did uh, the Wings for Life World Run. I did um, the, uh, the Bull Shop, which is there. Uh, merchandise I did all the social for them and then they asked me to run the um, the global social accounts to run all the content for those and after six months I realized that I knew about social but I didn't know as much as I thought I did so uh, they said would you like to come and work for us full-time uh, and give up your freelance career and I said yep yeah. so I, jo- I rejoined Red Bull full-time uh, and I managed their social accounts for a year. And then a year later, I was asked to move. Myself and the family moved to Salzburg. To, to I was editor-in-chief of RedBull.com. And I did that for four years. So just running running the uh, the digital side of things. So I, I assumed, obviously wrongly, I've, I've since learned now, that, that you were an F1 fan of sorts or an F1 nut prior to moving, moving to, to Red Bull. But... Presumably that, I mean, that may well have happened subsequently, but originally you weren't. No, I, I had no uh, interest in it whatsoever. I had no knowledge of it, to be honest. Um, and, you know, that F1 for dummies, I really did read it twice. Uh, um, but it turned out that I, I didn't need to because it was a, the, the bulletin was a bit of a satirical magazine. But, but no, I learned about it. And, you know, I, I understand the obsession with it. But I, what I quite liked was... And, you know, my race reports were, were not in-depth analysis of tyre strategy. They were more about what Fernando Alonso had had for breakfast that day. So um, it was it was less sport, but I, I kind of understood the audience. I knew how fanatical they were. And it was I managed to find things that were a bit different. So I, I, I kind of covered over the fact that I had no knowledge of Formula 1. So then for anyone else listening who, who doesn't have knowledge of, of Formula One even now then, so can you just explain what the paddock is? Because you said that's, that's an area where people are sort of inside racing, not, not the general punter. 
No, so I mean, uh, so the paddock is um, it's it's the backstage area, and it's there are there are several elements to it. There's the teams, and that's the the drivers, the engineers, the mechanics, and the communication staff. So it's it's the the teams. It's also uh, the media and the press. Uh, it's also uh, the sponsors, um, and also an awful lot of hangers-on. Um, and there are only a certain amount of paddock passes that are, are dished out at every race. And to get one of these is kind of to be asked backstage, basically. Uh, and you get to see around the garages. You get to go to the motorhomes. So it's quite it's 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 kind of you know behind the the velvet rope for for Formula One. Um, and there's a lot of politics there. There's a lot of ego there, uh, but also there's a lot of fun as well. There's a lot of really good people working F1. Uh, I've made some really good friends friends there. But the, yeah, there's a lot of ego involved in the paddock. Yeah, no, no doubt about that whatsoever. Don't doubt it at all. Um, but then the paddock. So then the red bulletin itself. Somehow the paying fan found out about these. How how did that happen? And did that did that kind of lead you to thinking perhaps you needed to do more in terms of engaging with the consumer and the customer? I th- they found out about it in a couple of ways. A lot of a lot of people, not me, uh, would sell them on eBay, and so you could make quite a lot of money by selling them on eBay and then it was it was word of mouth and then there was I think we did Monza in 2006 so the Italian Grand Prix I think we did um we did a a pad a a stand edition so we did one for the fans just to see what it was like and we did it in Italian so we did the whole magazine in English then I had a translator sitting next to me and then he translated it into Italian we then did an Italian print run straight after the um the English language one and so it cut we kind of seeded it and and I probably and I wasn't party to this strategy but I think Red Bull were, were testing it seeing if the brand worked um and it now exists as uh, a standalone magazine in uh 30 countries around the world and the Red Bulletin is a monthly magazine that covers the whole world of Red Bull and beyond. Um, so, so I think it was kind of the, the grand strategy was to do it, but but it was a really, it was a very uh, expensive <laughs> marketing testing exercise. But ultimately, you know, it, it worked. Well, especially, yeah, especially driving the, the press around with you, the print press with you in the, in the truck. I mean, that's incredible. How how would, how did the other teams uh, regard it? Did they look at you like you were bonkers? Uh, bonkers and also uh, skeptical because you know it was why was was Red Bull which had never been in Formula One before it would come in you know it was brash it wasn't we weren't traditional we weren't a car manufacturer um, and then but then to write about other teams and we we always tried to be agnostic about which teams we wrote about so we wrote about Honda as much as we wrote about Red Bull Racing we wrote about McLaren as much as we did Toro Rosso. Um, so they were they were skeptical, and we got into cr- trouble a couple of times. There was there was a columnist, um, and he he would he would push it, he would push it, and reveal stuff around the paddock. And I think the editor was called into a couple of team motorhomes, just and chastised and dressed down for for just overstepping the mark. But but for the most part, they and they grew to love it. You know, there was uh, there was a, a brilliant picture of Fernando Alonso when he was driving for Renault brandishing uh, uh, a red bulletin because we said he was he was not very good and he was never going to win the world championship and he did uh, and it, uh, but that him brandishing the red bulletin was just brilliant for us because it meant that was that was the cover of our uh, season um, roundup we put it everywhere just to say you know we really got under his skin so yeah we, we tried we tried to be a little bit satirical and a little bit kind of edgy as much as we could in f1 yeah, well, I mean that's probably appropriate to to Red Bull in terms of their their brand and and, and uh, subsequent activities. And what what else did you do then while you while you were there? Because I know you, you launched their social media channels. How how did you go about launching those? Yeah, that was in two thousand and nine, and we didn't have social social didn't exist in F one. But then somebody had kind of come and pitched Twitter to me and said it's a micro blogging service, and I just went, this is fucking mental. This is not, this is, you know, what are you talking about? This will never work. We would never do it. But I kind of got thinking about it and thinking about how we could do it. And then the first race of the season, um, we were in Melbourne. And it was, I think it was a Thursday or a Friday. So before before the, the race weekend. And I saw uh, Leo Sayer, the um, diminutive disco king of the 1970s and 80s. And he's a big motorsport fan, but uh, he was, it was, it was kind of, 
uh, it was sad because he was on his own, but he was obviously just really enjoying himself. Still had his his big afro, big kind of leather satchel, and so I thought I've got to I've got to tell somebody about this. I've got to do something with it, just because I thought it was it was funny. And so I set up uh, Red Bull F1 Spy that, and in about you know ten minutes, however long it takes to set up a Twitter account, and just wrote that. And of course, nobody's ever seen that tweet because it was the first one, so I didn't have any followers. But uh, but that was kind of so I owe my career basically to Leo Sayer. Um, and then just because few other teams were doing it, in fact, I don't. I think McLaren had got had got a, an account, but I just kind of went for it because it was our CMS, our content management system on the, on the website at the time was was rubbish, and this was a way of kind of getting stories out really quickly. Um, and bypassing the website, um, and the fans absolutely loved it. They just they they kind of really took to it, um, and the the Red Bull F1 spy became a bit of a kind of thing. It, he he had an app, he had a column in the Sun, uh, all sorts of things. So it kind of grew and grew beyond just me and a Twitter account. But um, I just loved it because it was it was a direct access to the fans, which we didn't really do uh, in F1 at that stage. I suppose there was um, there's parallels there as well in terms of the immediacy of Twitter, albeit slightly more immediate than the the bulletin that you were working on. But even that was was produced on site on the day or across those space of four days of a race. Absolutely, yeah, and it just you know that that whole kind of you know the behind the scenes thing which everybody does. People people love it because they they do want to kind of glimpse behind the curtain and and F one the curtain is so heavy and dense and thick and nobody's ever looked behind it but as soon as you kind of give people a glimpse they they absolutely love it um, so yeah it was it was it was fun to do and it kind of served a purpose for for Red Bull as well was it also I mean th- just thinking about it now was it was it also an element of enjoyment about it simply because you hadn't you hadn't started necessarily with with any expectations in mind and it just kind of evolved and grew and it was something different that people weren't doing rather than knowing it was going to develop this way absolutely yeah and you know uh it was it was good fun and but it came crashing down when when and i think it was it must have been two or three seasons later when management worked out what i was doing and how many people were following us because they didn't you know they were making a, a, a champ, world championship winning Formula One car. They didn't have time to look at Twitter. And once they worked out I was doing it, they, they kind of dragged me in a bit and said, you just need to be careful. You know, don't, don't push it too far. So it's, but it was, it was great fun to just, just to do it with such a big team, such a big sort of organization and not really have any rules because I wasn't a pioneer in social, but it was kind of it was just there were no there was no one else doing it in F one, so we could push it as 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 far as we 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 tried to push it as far as we could. And did you typically work with your team internally, or did you work alongside partner agencies and such? The the only reason I'm asking, or the, the biggest reason I'm asking, is because we have on call to action. There's there's definitely an agency side slant in terms of guests that we've spoken to. We haven't actually spoken to as many client side marketers as we probably should have. For that, there wasn't no, and just because there was, <laughs> there was just me and a keyboard, and so I didn't. And and but I, I remember I used to take you know a voice recorder, a video camera, a stills camera, in a big bag, and and all the charges with it. You know, this was before iPhones did everything for us. So I would just do all the content myself. Um, we had agencies um, help us with the website. So um, Lane Terror Lever, which is based in Phoenix, Arizona, they did our website. Um, but the content itself was pretty much me, um, Laura McNally, who was I worked with as she was uh, my producer. She's now uh, head of social at Auto Trader UK. Uh, she and she kind of got it as well. So the two of us basically put all the content together. That's not so we couldn't have done with some support from agencies, but but we didn't have it, especially for that social side. Were there any kind of best practices that you followed at, at Red Bull that you can you can share with us just to give us a kind of insight into the the client side world? Probably not from Red Bull Racing, but from Red Bull, it was uh, we. What I always tried to do, uh, so this is kind of coming forward to to when I was at RedBull.com. It was always to to make sure that the brand of Red Bull, which you know, if if I said to you Red Bull, you might say soapbox, you might say music academy, you might say uh, you know uh, RB Leipzig, 
that Red Bull has its fingers in many pies, but Red Bull as a brand, you kind of, you know instinctively what it is. And it was always to make sure that that, that brand uh, ethos and core was everything we did. So we could do, they did uh, things like a donkey derby they've done, you know, that we did paper aeroplane uh, throwing, all sorts of really wacky stuff. But at the core, it was kind of, it had Red Bull. It was kind of, you know, giving you energy, both metaphorically and literally. Um, just developing that side of things was the most important. So we could we could touch it. There was lots of stuff we could we could go into, but as long as it had that that core brand element to it, then it, it worked. So um, in terms of in, inside, that hasn't really given you any insight. Just that for Red Bull, it was kind of the brand was was absolutely key. And anyone that didn't get that, their content just wouldn't wouldn't pass muster. Yeah, it's it's it's, um, it's difficult to to articulate it uh, for me, but I I am um, as someone who I remember going to the X Games at Clapham Common years and years ago, just watching all the BMXs and stuff, and it was incredible. But one thing that I think is true is that there is that consistency that you speak of now in terms of Red Bull the brand and, and and the types of activations that you get involved in. But with a nod back to that time at Clapham, which now doesn't happen as I understand it anymore, there is constant change at the same time. So whether it's paper airplanes or cliff jumping or soapbox racing or any of the numerous stunts that Red Bull have been associated to, there is there is still a consistency, isn't there? Albeit it's you know constantly changing. Yeah, yeah, and and that's and the interesting thing was you know we we would produce content centrally, and then that would be given to markets to either use, uh, translate, or use as a framework. But they'd also do their own stuff as well. So if you look at the content produced by uh, Red Bull in America compared to the content produced in Red Bull in Russia or Australia, it's totally different in terms of of the events, in terms of the athletes used, in terms of the artists. But it still has you can you can recognise it beyond the kind of the the blue and and silver logo. You know it's a Red Bull event. Um, so yeah, that was that was the interesting bit about Red Bull. We it had a wide net, but everything was was core to that brand. Have I imagined it, or was there like a giant water slide type Red Bull event in in the states? <laughs> but uh, I, I don't, I can't remember it. But that doesn't mean it hasn't happened, or that, or you may have just given them a bloody good idea. Yeah. <laughs> but um, did did it ever lead to any problems? I mean, we outside of of that particular industry, I've you know I've seen firsthand issues that can happen due to different offices spread around the world trying to kind of work in sync. But did you ever have any issues with that, given you said that the events and activities could be incredibly different from one country to the next or one region to the next? Oh, yeah. We, you know, and we would have, you know, if there were big events, they they would... like most companies, they would they would kind of say, "We think you're doing this. What do you think?" And and some of them were just like, you know, it wasn't monkey tennis, literally, but it was that it was going into that area. And also, you know, the the audiences for Red Bull Russia they could take a lot more than uh, you know Western Europe or the States. They would be a little less uh, concerned about things. So you had to be aware of you had to be sensitive to the local audiences, but also be be more sensitive to, to this is a representation of Red Bull and especially digitally when you know if you produce something in Singapore or Japan within 30 seconds that's then being seen globally so if you if you cross the line so it's it's an interesting balance that I think and especially all, a lot of global companies as content and content marketing uh, becomes more prevalent that that balance between local and, and central and and ensuring that your local audiences are served, but they're served with content that that represents your brand. That's a, that's a really it's a tough nut to crack. Just quickly, actually, do you like the taste of Red Bull? I do. Yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> are you are you familiar with Rory's Rory Sutherland's book Alchemy? I'm not. No, no. Should I? He well, he talks about um, he talks about logic and 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 you know kind of nonsense really really well and really effectively. And I think it's the opening chapter. He talks about some of the original research that was done prior to launching Red Bull and one of the research panelists came back and said and I think this is a direct quote 
I wouldn't drink that shit if you paid me to. And it was unanimously disliked. Like to, the people weren't, people wouldn't just normally with, with, with soft drinks or drinks of any type of um, category, they would, they would normally quite politely say they disliked the taste. But the taste of Red Bull made people really angry, like to the point where they would leave comments like that. But, but, but yet it's had remarkable success. So it's always a, yeah, interesting I mean, one. there's an apocryphal story about, uh, uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but, but Dietrich Mateschitz, who, who started Red Bull, apparently that was the one flavour where people either absolutely loved it or absolutely hated it. And he said, that's it. I just want, you know, he wanted some, he wanted reaction. Um, so I don't know whether that's all true or whether that's just him using his marketing now to, uh, to tell a good tale, but. But I'll, I'll go and read that book because that sounds very interesting. Oh, it's hilarious! Yeah, no, it's great. But then, it, but then, for that very reason you just shared about the uh, the founder, it, it worked. I mean, you can't imagine soapbox racing or cliff diving being a kind of weak Robinson's cordial. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they, we, you know, we like to get a reaction, um, and we, we would, you know, in, in going back to Red Bull Racing, we would piss people off. Um, and uh, you know, Lewis Hamilton said, you know, that at least I don't work for a drinks company. And like that sort of stuff, that was just, that was grist to the mill. That was great stuff for us. Um, and I used to take great pleasure, and I don't know why, I took great pleasure in, in annoying Fernando Alonso fans. So I would just tweet, <laughs> and I I would just tweet about, you know, he's, ooh, he's looking glum this morning, you think he's all right, and all this sort of stuff. And his fans would come back and say, why do you do it? Why do you hate it? And I said, I don't, I just I just love the way his fans react. And, they, and so, so they couldn't say anything, because they were like, yeah, fair enough. I've reacted. Funny enough, I, I was going to I was going to sidestep actually and talk about other sports. And, and I, re- I mentioned in your introduction that you write a column for iSport Connect. But I think you've alluded to it there. You allude to a, a, a story about a feud with racing fans on on social. Is there anything you can you can share with us on that, or is it sensitive? No, no. I mean, it, uh, I mean, it, well, had they not taken the Twitter account down, it would still be there. Um, it was it was a it was. The Turkish Grand Prix, I think this is the one you're talking about, the Turkish Grand Prix where we were we were doing really well uh, and I think it was 2010 and Mark Webber and Sebastian Vettel were our drivers and they, they hit, they collided and Vettel spun off out the race. Mark Webber came third and he should have won it. And so it was it was quite a big thing. At the time, the fans went, went a bit mental and they were kind of going, and it was very partisan, you know, it was like the Australians would obviously side with Mark uh, the Germans would sign with Sebastian, and everyone else would would pick a team, and and they were, they got quite angry about it. And I I hadn't really you know at that stage for me social was just like you know putting out sarcastic comments about Fernando Alonso, but this was kind of this was real. This was a bit more serious, and so people got very angry about it. And at the at the time, I started responding to them. And I realised that that's not how you do community management because that just escalated. And if I put something saying, you know, the team is, we, we race as one team, then the swearing and death threats would, would get even louder and, and more vitriolic. So I, I, I learned about kind of community management pretty, you know, it was a baptism of a swearing and fire when people were really pissed off about it. And so that was kind of, that was an interesting one for me because at the time it had all been sweetness and light. We'd all been getting on very nicely. But when something like that happens, and sports especially, because people are so invested emotionally with with sport, people, you know, if you piss them off, then they get quite angry. So, so that was an interesting one. Yeah, I bet it was a PR PR lesson of sorts, I suppose. Yes, yes, we had a yeah, we had a lot of PR after that one. Yeah, yeah, lesson. I still don't. I, I don't, don't think they send each other Christmas cards even to this day, but. <laughs> I doubt, yeah, no, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So um, you mentioned earlier about how social media wasn't really a thing or wasn't really available when you were doing the, the original Red Bulletin on, on site. But clearly, digital channels and, and the media that is now available to any business, regardless of businesses within sport, has, has evolved significantly. How can sports teams and fans take advantage of those new technologies like AI and augmented reality and such, because I know that's a particular interest of yours. Yeah, I know it's a bit noir of yours, isn't it? <laughs> I love your intro about Pokemon Go and just ah <laughs> no, but I haven't got an issue with it. I'm a huge fan of augmented reality, and in truth, 
um, I probably shouldn't say this. I've got nothing against Pokemon Go at all. I what I what I the issue I have with it is 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 the, uh, how people interpreted its success and how market how marketers and people responded to it rather than it itself. If that if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect sense. And I I think this is uh, and my thing with VR and AR with with virtual reality and augmented reality is that it it has to serve a purpose and not be just a shiny thing that. You know the 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 chief marketing officer has discovered and we we need one of those. And uh, I think um, augmented reality is a really interesting one because it, it it's there in sports already, in cricket, in tennis, um, you know, and even um, goal line technology now in in uh, soccer and football. So I think AR um, augmented reality is the one where I think it can add a lot to to the experience. My big thing, though, is to, to make sure that it doesn't take away from the experience itself. And, you know, I think the reason the reason I think we all, those of us who are sports fans love, love sport is because it's one of the only areas left where you watch a live event and there are no spoilers. There are no kind of, you can't find out what happens beforehand. You have to live the kind of the, the narrative. And as long as we don't take away from that, then I think... AR is, is a really good thing for fans and it has been especially during lockdown when you know we didn't get to see live sport and I think it's a, a a really useful tool for teams especially to do some really interesting stuff but make it interesting stuff and make it an addition to the event not the event itself which I think is probably what is that what you mean by Pokemon Go it's like you know it's it shouldn't be the new shiny thing it's just it was it was clever it got people talking got people understanding augmented reality I think that there's a couple of re- there's a couple of reasons why I have a particular issue of it, and I don't come come out very well from this explanation. But one is it, it became the like j- quite like what you're saying. It became the augmented reality is the answer. What's the question? Most you know to not most, but you know to many people. The other thing is we actually worked with Sydney's uh, office Havas of Havas uh, and their mobile partner at the time with a, was a, an agency called Mocha, also Sydney based. It was to launch John Clancy's The Division. A computer game and we had proposed that they basically ran a similar type of AR event in the cities of Sydney and they had you know outdoor media work to certain checkpoints that was being tracked on people's smartphones so very similar mechanic I mean don't, and there's nothing unique about that I'm sure every agency in the world has thought about it at some point so they ended up scaling the idea down so much that it just became a little bit of a I don't know, let's run around the city for a bit and pretend we're doing something. So, yeah, I mean, I might put a few noses out of joints uh, there, but, you know, so what? They killed the idea. But I, I think so there's, a, there's a bit of jealousy there as yeah, well. Yeah, no, I think, I, but yes. So that's it's an interesting one, Pokemon Go, because it, it, as soon as you then explain what augmented reality is, and you say it's Pokemon Go, they go, oh, okay, got it. Um, but then, you know, that like your, your AR treasure hunt, that would have been an amazing thing if you if you do it to the scale. But it has to be that scale, and that's why Pokemon Go worked because it's it was global. Anyway, enough of Pokemon Go. <laughs> why would you do that? Uh, but then it's funny because I, funny enough, I even remember talking to. Um, I mean, we don't we don't work with estate agents anymore. It's our company policy for too many reasons to go into. But we actually talked to one nationwide agent about layer when they first kind of produced their augmented reality it became it became a lot more accessible about probably about nine years ago now maybe maybe around nine or ten years ago and it was for an app that they originally had produced in holland but it was to help people find properties which were available based on their location and they could look through their smartphone camera as you would expect to see proximity of properties for sale and they could pull up property details and have a little flip through and a range of, of viewing so on and so forth and like I say, this was this was so long ago, and it never really got much traction, which always surprised me. But I do think in in the in the sports industries, there's huge opportunity to do stuff. Not least because of the pandemic, but even outside of that, there's so many so many other opportunities, and especially for uh, sponsors as well. Things like side hoardings that change according to your your location, or uh, there was the Nickelodeon touchdown slime thing i don't know whether you saw that there was a, an nfl game and when it was touchdown there was all this nickelodeon slime went all over the screen and it looked it was it was it was done for the right audience it was only it was done kind of once during the, the game but it was just really good it was kind of it had it heightened to the experience rather than detracted from it so yeah i agree i think i think that there's a long way to go in sport and um and virtual and augmented reality 
and it's not even just those two uh, technologies, is it? You've got the likes of Twitch and I don't know TikTok. There's there's so there's so many there's so many new areas that could develop to help either enhance or recreate fan experiences. And then alongside that, you've got the rise of esports, which is just massive. I mean, for anyone listening who's not actually familiar with esports or the scale of esports and the, the the money involved, it's astronomical, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it's and what I love about esports is that uh, it's uh, it's certainly a, it's a generational thing. Um, and I think there's there's you know there's definitely an age cutoff where you go below that age you've definitely heard of esports and you know the teams and you know the games they're playing and above that age you might do you might not um so it's definitely a kind of generational thing but they've really gone for it and and what i also love about it is their live events you know and this is what what people can't get their head around the kind of traditional sports sort of say well it's not sport because it's computer games and you go it is sport and you just look at the live arenas when they had live arenas and, and fans and stuff and the, the millions of people that are streaming that stuff it's just great i love it i think it's a really exciting area um and people should be a little more accepting of it and not not worried about it no i agree or at least at least test i mean like you like we we, we spoke about your time at, at red bull initially that where you didn't necessarily know where something might go to and how it might develop there's so much there's so much available to try and just with an open mind of this could lead to something it might not yeah and and also uh esports is, is quite um democratic as well so you know that you can have your your 13 year old son can sit in his bedroom and stream esports to you know five or six followers and build those followers so it's it's i love the fact that you know it's available to everyone as well you don't need masses of equipment to start playing and broadcasting it's not to the you know it's not to the proper level but at least it's it's kind of getting people involved in sport that's a really good point about it being democratic and in fact this is this is going off on a bit of a tangent but i'm going to share it anyway but i saw this video during the first lockdown certainly over the summer i think where it was a chain of restaurants in japan that had started to use robot waiters and in order to earn a salary the robot waiters were being controlled remotely like you would control right. a computer game by people who um, had disabilities, which basically prevented them from, you know, they were, they were essentially bed bound, but it allowed them to earn a wage and earn a salary and control the right. I mean, it's just amazing. There's a, not really parallels right. there with these sports, but the, you know, the same principles apply. And it was just such an incredible, incredible way of giving people back some dignity and actually give them that facility to earn a living. That's genius. Yeah. I'd love that. I'm going to go and do some research on that one. I think that's really clever. I'll send you the link. I'm, I'm sure it was Lee Trot. Lee Trot tends to be my uh, source okay. of wonderful <laughs> things that happen in Japan. Uh, he's, a, he's an absolute legend at finding things like that i'd like to ask you a couple of listener questions david of course yes so asking the general public for their opinion be it on brexit or boat names is notoriously fraught with danger but we've got two for you and this is this is on topic nick asks given we're almost a year into supporting sports during the pandemic are you surprised at the lack of armchair ar options for sports fans that's a really good question I think I'm not surprised for two reasons. I think uh, sport is relatively traditional. I think uh, sport it takes a little while to, to to invest money in in new technology broadly. So I'm quite so I, I would say that it's quite conservative. But also I think um, that there's there's also a fear that if you make the home experience so good, then do you kind of it's a bit like working from home now. Is working from home so good that you never want to, go, want to go back to the office? If you make the the kind of viewing options so good at home, why would you go out to King Power Stadium on a wet Wednesday night to watch a nil nil draw sort of thing? Um, but it's I think I think sport will definitely you know you can see it coming, um, and it will have to go through a kind of a learning curve of getting stuff right, getting stuff wrong, overcompensating, uh, but definitely will we will get there. Um, and I just hope they do things things like you know Hawkeye, which I think is just is such clever technology, um, or the goal line um, technology. I think that sort of stuff will will develop. Um, but again, I just hope not at the expense of the the event and spectacle itself. I think the context of, of, of the 
pandemic obviously is entirely different to anything well hopefully anything we'll have to face again but you know time will tell there but I'm surprised given that airplanes have cameras and screens embedded in every chair I think the, the fact that cameras are also embedded in chairs isn't necessarily common knowledge but they largely are I would have thought that the likes of King Power Stadium or my man Daniel Levy would have thought about doing the same in, in the season ticket holders chairs just to kind of recreate that experience of being at a match because it wouldn't take you know the tech could be quite primitive in terms of putting you next to the people you're used to sitting next to but I'm sure there would be yeah, that's true. some yeah. a way of recreating that kind of season ticket uh, seat view that's an interesting one actually yeah of, of, of having giving your season ticket view although you know uh, perhaps half of the half of the the benefit of watching from home is several camera angles and and commentators but yeah you should you should be able to see your you know your from where your seat is and the sweary bloke next to you and all those yeah. things. <laughs> always a sweary bloke next to you yes question two is from tammy and tammy asks Red Bull are excellent at backing big, memorable experiences and often used as an example of a brand that just gets its target market. How much goes on behind the scenes to make it look so simple? I think with with Red Bull, it's, it's content. Um, it, it knows who its market is and it knows what it, it wants its markets to enjoy and consume. So... You know, if you look at um, skateboarding, uh, we worked very hard to be credible in what was a, a quite uh, cynical scene. You know, skateboarding traditionally doesn't like brands coming in and saying, here, here's, here's some stickers, here's some drinks, put on a show for us. And so we've tried really hard to be very credible. And I think that's that's partly what, what Red Bull does is there is always an element of kind of making sure that that we don't, just do something for the sake of marketing. And I realise that sounds that sounds quite paradoxical when much of what Rebel does is marketing. But there is a lot of thought behind ensuring that there is uh, credibility in, in what is done uh, and it's done with the audience in mind, as a, with, with that particular audience in mind, as opposed to the uh, drink-buying audience. So, you know, with Formula One, we, we were so keen to ensure that it was we put a Red Bull spin on F1. It wasn't Red Bull coming in, throwing a party and then, you know, not and being a bit rubbish at racing. We, they, the, the team was so good. And that's from the engineers, the mechanics, the designers, the drivers, the, the management. They all had one goal in mind, which was to win a world championship. And so, so, and that was to have credibility within the F1 audience. They did it to win the sport, not, just to take part and be the, the kind of paddock clowns. It was it was done with quite with with seriousness. So I'd probably say that's 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 what we we did. It was to ensure that it was a credible entry into any market. Um, but you know, but having said that, the soapbox is probably not not the most uh, credible of audiences. I think there's a, there's a good answer. That's a good answer though, because I think you're. Um... Yeah, they they did it. They do everything properly, don't they? I used to live with a with a pro skater when I lived in Bristol called uh, Boytek, and he, um, a lovely guy, he was a fucking nutter. He, um, <laughs> I, I, he once he once buttered the kitchen, <laughs> and I mean he buttered every layer, every surface in the kitchen. But anyway, he so so he certainly wouldn't have reacted kindly to a big shiny uh, corp, corporation coming along and sticking a sponsor their logo on an event. But I think that with certainly with the X Games, which is kind of where I'm going here, that a lot of it seemed to be more kind of grassroots and, and it, it kind of grew with Red Bull. It wasn't something that already existed and you came and slapped a logo on it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think probably the, the, the best example was Red Bull Music Academy. And, you know, if you think about how cynical uh, musicians and the music buying are and how they they fear, not fear, their mistrust of big corporations and record companies. So this was a company that, you know, came in, but but we set up, we, we, we gave it back to people making music. So the Music Academy, for those people who don't know, was it was a series of kind of guest lectures. And that could have been Giorgio Moroder, it could have been Andy Weatherall, it could have been Peter Hook from, from New Order and Joy Division. Uh, but they come and give lectures and talk about their lives and then these musicians who had applied to, to come to the college would then learn learn from them. So 
there was no there was no selling involved there was no we did you know it wasn't a big charity gig at the end it wasn't a kind of free download it was just this kind of interaction between people who had made it people who wanted to to make it in music and 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 how that developed and i think that's probably the best example of an experience that really had its grass those that you know that grassroots uh credibility at its core yeah i wasn't familiar with that actually i'm going to look that up sounds amazing it was it was great yeah so david the final part of the interview is our four pertinent posers starting with what advice would you give to your younger self i was, I was talking about this with my wife and i said I, i'm going to say aim higher earlier and she said well you've done all right i was going uh, i thought yeah okay um and then i thought about uh you know um i think i think miss you know failing at stuff i've heard a lot of people say on this podcast the same thing but your failures will become uh, lessons in the future and you just have to make sure you realize what went wrong how to avoid it in the future um so i just say and also don't be afraid of making mistakes so aim higher earlier yeah <laughs> amazing no I, I i you're right i mean that's come the, the failure point has come up a few times and it's, it's a point that i like to make myself and i i think it's one of those things that you just it's I think with all advice, actually, I remember being given advice a lot when I was much younger and just, I don't know, maybe not being receptive to listening to any of it. <laughs> but uh, but, it's, but, it is, but it is such a good piece of advice and, and not fearing it is, is key. It's the, it's, the, it's the difference between, you know, trying something and, and just always wondering what if. So, no, I'm, I'm really with you on that one. Uh, number two is if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I realise there's a wrecking ball of irony coming my way with this one, but uh, I'm going to say I would ban homegrown experts. And what I mean is that, um, and this is both sides, this is both the, the client side and um, the agency side, is that uh, I think, especially in digital and social media, we have access to so many lessons, talks, uh, um, books, all this stuff uh, that we can make us instant experts. And I don't think you can become an instant expert in a lot of these things. You have to kind of go through those growing pains of of stuff. And I've seen it both, you know, I've seen brands go and, and people higher up the company say, well, I've got an Instagram account. I can do our social media strategy. And it's like, no, it's slightly different. And also uh, I've seen agencies advise us and say, this is what you need to put on your social. And I go, that's a it's the wrong platform b it's the wrong message and c that's our wrong audience so i think it's you know homegrown experts where people become suddenly uh uh gurus experts in their field with without having done it um would be what i would like to get rid of perfect number three david any books that you would recommend i don't oh, is it like um tr- uh Desert Island dish, discs where we get delusions of grandeur automatically. And then <laughs> no, you have to you have to request it just to uh, fluff mine and Ryan's ego. No, no, no you can get that one already. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. I did, I, I bought that when it came out, and uh, it, it just hit so many nails firmly on the head. It was, I, I loved it. Um, but, but I'd probably go for. I really enjoyed Ogilvy on advertising, both as a kind of reference uh, to some of the core elements which are still remain true but also as a contrast to to how much has changed since it first came out and i've I tried miles young's uh ogilvy on advertising in the digital age but it doesn't quite have the same resonance and i think that's because ogilvy was looking back at his career and what he'd done and and kind of miles was was it was still the industry is still nascent if uh, so it wasn't kind of a retrospective, but uh, yeah, Ogilvy on advertising, I, I just think is a very, and it also I let, I let, he's, he's this kind of the, the character of kind of, you know, saying if you write cop, copy properly, you can have a French mansion like me. Yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's great. I've, I've read it too. It's, it's a wonderful book. And thank you for the uh, kind words on, on delusions where the, the sequel is not too far away, hopefully. And then number four, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest. So would you please dedicate this episode? It's going to be, um, I thought lots of, there are lots of people kind of, you know, if, if you talk to me about content, it would be Tim Robinson, who is my, one of my editors. Marketing, Colin Lewis is just, a, he's just such a, he's such a generous, well-read intelligent chap that i just you know him him marketing in general is him i'm gonna edit Um, that bit out but go on (laughs) (laughs) 
if it was if it was business, it's my dad who just he kept saying, "Just take care of business, and everything else will take care of itself." And I thought, "You're not paraphrasing Elvis Presley here, are you?" But he just I knew what he meant. He just kind of just focus. But actually, the, the most impressive person, the one I'm going to dedicate this to, is Catherine Chan, who is uh, she was my um, manager at Red Bull when I moved to the media house. Um, she was head of global social. Uh, and she is one of the few people that I've met who who understands uh, the art and the science of digital and social marketing. So the data and the content, the creative and the, the analytical. And she's just uh, just very, very clever. And when her book comes out, we will all be reading it. Um, she went for Red Bull and then worked for Elon Musk in Tesla uh, and then worked at Facebook. So she's she's got an impressive CV and she, you know, she was she's half my age, but she's she's twice. Uh, my level of intellect (laughs) amazing okay well this episode is um well a special mention to tim colin and your dad but the episode is dedicated to Catherine chan fantastic so as a final call to action everyone listening can head over to this episode we'll have links to everything discussed in the last hour including ogilvy on advertising how else can our listeners get more david granger I do uh, a monthly column for iSport Connect. Um, I also put all those columns onto Medium. So if you look at uh, search for Grave Danger on Medium and on Twitter, I'm at Grave Danger, which is it's a spoonerism of my name, an accidental spoonerism, um, which uh, I, they had to stop a geography A-level lesson because the geography teacher found it so funny. He couldn't concentrate well. <laughs> um, so that's, that's one of the benefits of having a, a funny spoonerism. It gets you out of geography A-level. Amazing. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, um, David, thank you so much for joining us. I've, re- I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. Thanks very much, Charles. Thank you. And finally, thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it and review the podcast. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or email hello at quarteraction.co. Try and I try.